Hello, and welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome back to our next episode of Arbitral Insights. My name is Ben Love. I am a member of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Group based in New York, and I am delighted to have two distinguished guests with us today. The first is Chris Moyes, the president and founder of Moyes & Co., an international oil and gas consulting firm based out of Dallas. And our second guest is Chris Moore, who is another international energy and natural resources expert. And with that, I'd like to begin. Let's start off. Our topic for today is decommissioning disputes. So either Chris, could you help us or help the uninitiated by defining what decommissioning is? Perhaps I can handle that. This is Chris Moyes. At the end of the life of an oil or gas field, it is a requirement to decommission the facilities, the wells, anything related to the production operation, and remediate the lands that it's on or the sea back to some agreed status that is defined usually in both the host government instruments, the PSC or royalty tax, or in the legislation, and or in your joint operating agreement. And when I say end of the field life, uh, it could be the end of the life of a subset of the field, maybe a producing facility is no longer acquired, the well is to be abandoned. That is a decommissioning process. So it, it covers everything from abandoning one well to complete decommissioning of an entire production operation. Thank you for that description. So you mentioned that decommissioning standards can be found often in, in contracts or under national law. Are there also international conventions that might impact on decommissioning obligations in certain jurisdictions? There's no established practice. I think we generally agree the facility should be removed, but it can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some are very precise. uh, Some have no discussion at all. The, The concept of decommissioning is recent, the last decade or so, and people didn't think about it 30 or 40 years ago. The end of life of a field that may be 30 or 40 years was not considered at the time. So there isn't an established practice. You really do go back, have to go back to look at the practice in the jurisdiction and your contracts to find out what your obligations are. Those obligations, as when we're looking at a matter of contract, is it correct to say they're generally contained in what is called a joint operating agreement? 
the joint new uh, joint operating agreements will have or may well have some uh, extensive description of decommissioning, largely as it relates to the relationship between the partners. But you, one would look back to the host government instrument, the production sharing contract or the legislation, to see what the government requires. So there's interlocking pieces to the requirement. The government may have nothing in the legislation about abandonment uh, or the the production sharing contract is a contract, uh, not in the form of a legislative regulation. And there may be it may be silent, but the practice in the industry would either be to turn the field over to the government, the state oil company, and or abandon it if it's really at the end of its economic life. So the joint operating agreement is part of documentation and requirements, but you also have to look at the other contracts that. Which, which may not be a production sharing contract, it may be the environmental laws that have been adopted or it could be health, safety and environment. If you're abandoning a field, particularly a big field, you may have, like we see in North Sumatra, a community of 600,000 individuals that have built their entire life around this field and when the production and the revenue stops, all the revenue for that town stops. So there are multiple agreements that may come into your consideration of the decommissioning process. Ah, that's very interesting. So I can just imagine that you know, with decommissioning, like other processes in oil and gas operations, that there's been an evolution in industry standards and practices over time. You know, assuming that's correct, could you give us a bit of insight into how decommissioning practices have evolved over, you know, the last 50 or 60 years? Hi, this is Chris Moore. As Chris Moyes mentioned, 40 or 50 years ago, people didn't worry about decommissioning, largely because many of the early petroleum contracts were in the Middle East, where there were very long live fields where it was expected that they would be handed back to the state oil company, um, and so decommissioning didn't arise. But as we moved into higher cost, more difficult developments, the, the need to make an economic return meant that fields had much shorter lives, and so it was likely that abandonment or decommissioning would occur within the contract life or at its end. And that's where we started to see practice change somewhat, because the biggest issue is that once you have got to the end of the life, the cash flow has dried up. And so there needs to be some mechanism to make sure that somebody can pay for the decommissioning activities. And so we have evolved into a a situation where the most common practice today is for money to be placed into some escrow account during the life of the field so that at the end of its life or the end of the contract, there is money available that can be used to pay for abandonment. 
And that benefits not only the host government who can rely on the money being available, but also, and this is where we get back to the joint operating agreement, there was a concern even with industry partnerships or joint ventures that each member would have enough money available to carry out their obligations. And so this idea of everybody contributing to a fund has some benefits even to the non-state actors in a petroleum contract. Thank you for that. That was a very useful description of how the decommissioning has evolved over time. One other background question I have is, does decommissioning raise distinct issues with respect to onshore versus offshore production operations? Perhaps I can start with this one. Obviously, the onshore does impact the social community around it. And so you have that as a consideration. It is also very visible. You can pick it up on satellite imagery now, and there is a watchful eye by many institutions on the facilities and the cleanup. There is also likely to have been leakage of hydrocarbons around wellheads or pipes. So the cleanup process is a little more granular. You may have to replace surface dirt, a bit like a gravel operation. You mine the gravel, but you put back the uh, topsoil and recultivate, quite possibly replant where the facility had been. Offshore is obviously to a degree out of sight, out of mind, but you have platforms and that is an area that's been of a lot of concern. How do you decommission a facility that may weigh 30,000 tonnes? And that's an area that has evolved dramatically in the last five years with the end of life in the North Sea. We now have special barges that can drive underneath a 10,000-ton platform. They cut the legs and cut the wells off and abandon what's on the sea floor, but they can then jack up the entire 10,000 tons of platform processing facilities and drive it to shore where it is uh, decommissioned in a yard. There's also subsea pipelines and there is differences uh, around the world of how those are to be handled. Not uncommon policy is for the lines to be cleared of hydrocarbons and then left on the seafloor as long as they don't present a danger to shipping or fishing, nets dragging. But offshore is more expensive, more complex, but is less visible. You could, of course, in some instances, leave some of the facilities on the sea floor. If it's two or 300 feet where they become reefs, they're cleaned up of hydrocarbons, various pollutants, and then just drop to the sea floor and become reefs for divers or fish to grow around. Interesting. So would it be correct to say that when considering potential decommissioning issues, 
in onshore projects, the main source of legal order would be national law and whatever contractual arrangements exist between the parties to the project. Whereas in offshore arrangements, an additional consideration might be the relevant state's international obligations under international environmental agreements, such as the OSPAR Convention or the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, or perhaps even fisheries agreements to the extent that these operations might have impacts on those activities? They would certainly be relevant and the operator should be aware of what is happening and what is required. But we have facilities like the Frigg Field in the North Sea, which sat on the United Kingdom-Norway border, and that facility was repurposed I happened to work on it in 1974, and when the field was finished, it was repurposed as a gas transportation hub coming from Norway to the United Kingdom, something we had not considered when we first put the field on production. And I think, Ben, that is one of the challenges. We are starting producing an oil field that may not end its life for 30 years, And we have to prepare a decommissioning plan quite often at the time the field development plan is submitted. But it's got to have enough flexibility that we can change it as technology changes or the use of the facilities changes that benefit society. Changing the free field from a producing platform to an international gas hub I think took about four years of negotiation and contractual arrangements because it had never been envisaged that would happen. That seems like it would be one of the the key challenges with constructing decommissioning arrangements at the outset uh, of a long-term project because 20 or 30 years later, as you're describing, the operator and its partners simply don't know what the situation will be from a legal standpoint, uh, environmental standpoint, and you know more generally a regulatory standpoint. Seems like a very important point. So given this background that you've so usefully set up, could we talk a bit about what happens when there are disagreements surrounding decommissioning, starting with, you know, what are the main types of disputes that you see arising at the decommissioning stage? There are really two sorts of disputes that may arise. And the first set arise if the host government instrument or and or the relevant legislation that's applicable to a particular contract do not address decommissioning because they are of an age where it was uncommon to include precise mechanisms for dealing with abandonment. And so there are issues about liability, when, by whom, and at whose expense should decommissioning be carried out. And there is a further subset of those disputes because a modern abandonment fund into which provisions are made each year is typically accompanied by those provisions being allowances that can be cost recovered or deducted for taxes. And if those arrangements were not in place, then attempting to put those arrangements or something similar to them in place retroactively 
in a situation where it was never envisaged can be a problem that creates a very complex dispute. The other set of disputes uh, goes back to what Chris was describing in terms of what you actually have to do in terms of decommissioning. And so there can be disputes about what has to be done, what should be done, what is best for the environment, which is not always intuitively obvious in terms, for instance, of of removing uh, subsea facilities and machinery. And so disputes can arise in that area. So broadly speaking, you can think of it in terms of commercial issues for which you need the commercial dispute mechanisms and the technical issues for which possibly a sort of a different dispute resolution approach might work in terms of appealing to experts to decide what indeed is the appropriate decommissioning activity. And in your experience, how are decommissioning disputes generally resolved? Do they tend to go to national courts or to arbitral tribunals? Our experience is, is that they, the ones we have encountered have generally gone to arbitration because they have been they have arisen from contractual host government instruments in which there is arbitration as the dispute resolution process. But there have been other examples of decommissioning-related disputes that, that have gone through the courts for in, the, in the UK, for example. And who are the typical parties to a decommissioning dispute? Is it generally the operator in a state-owned oil company, or could it be uh, any, any party that has an interest in the project? That t- depends on the nature of the, or under what mechanism the dispute has arisen. It could be between the national oil company and the contractor if it's a dispute in a PSC where it's the NOC who is the counterparty. But I, I suspect more often it's between the host government and the contractor if we're talking about disputes that relate to the fact that the decommissioning mechanisms and particularly the financial considerations were not adequately spelt out in the host government instrument and or the laws and regulations that govern that instrument. And are decommissioning disputes, are they typically large in value or is there a range within which you would say most decommissioning disputes fall? That's That will depend on the facilities. If it's a decommissioning of a single well in Texas, the amounts might be $25,000. Cut the wellhead off below the ground level, uh, clean up any uh, polluted soil, replant, and leave. An offshore field, the one in Mauritania, the decommissioning of the big offshore field is going to be a billion dollars. And we have quite a lot of examples of the cost of decommissioning. If you've watched the UK North Sea majors leave and they're selling their facilities to startup companies that are specialised in managing older fields, lower costs, Uh, then the payments from the major oil company to release them from their abandonment obligations have been as high as 800 million US dollars. 
just going back to disputes, we have had one or two surprising ones. Typically, royalty tax regimes are set in the legislation and all your obligations, and it is expected, I certainly had expected it, that it's quite obvious the operator and the contractor group have to abandon all the facilities, clean up everything, and leave. But there's been three or four surprising cases where the operator has declared bankruptcy or told the government that's an unreasonable request and I can't comply, don't have the money to comply with them, my private company, so here's the field back. And that has created a lot of consternation. It comes back, Ben, to we didn't think 20 or 30 years ago that it would be a concern. No one really thought about it. But both of those governments, one of which is my home government, are now thinking about how do we ensure that the operating group have the funds available. It's one thing for a super major to have a guarantee in place, a parent company guarantee, but if you're a small oil company, uh, the government may well want a fund established so that if you decide to leave, abandon the facilities and not pay for decommissioning, then uh, they have a mechanism in the fund to actually pay for that to happen. Thank you. That, that was a very helpful description. So once parties find themselves in a decommissioning dispute, as with many disputes in the oil and gas industry, typically experts have a role to play. And I, I know you both have acted as experts in various types of oil and gas disputes, but could you describe a bit about the types of experts that are typically or often used in decommissioning disputes? It rather depends on the nature of the dispute. I think broadly you can separate the role of an expert into, uh, well, first of all, of course, you could see dueling experts, which is generally what happens in arbitrations, but also a number of host government instruments, contractual ones in particular, do have experts as a way of resolving the dispute. And for a technical dispute where there is supposedly a correct answer, that is probably a reasonable way to go. The, the problem is that there are other areas, for instance, in a dispute over the fact that the host government instrument doesn't address the financial implications of decommissioning, then that's really more of a a strategic business issue requiring negotiation for which an expert determination is probably inappropriate. But generally speaking, technical experts, environmental people, project engineers and the like have a role in helping resolve disputes with respect to the activities that should or could be undertaken in decommissioning and indeed perhaps to audit the results for compliance. And then there is a whole suite of commercial issues for which commercial expertise can provide help in determining, for instance, how to attempt to apply an equitable fiscal arrangement retroactively, which gets into all sorts of arcane financial issues about dealing with 
their time value of money and other things. And so with that being said, what characteristics or qualifications should parties look for when selecting experts for decommissioning disputes? Experience and the appropriate professional qualifications, as indeed is the case with choosing experts in dispute resolution in in any area of the industry. I would add, I think, that global industry practice comes into what experts would rely on. So it is useful to have documentation of what's happened in other parts of the world and what other arbitrations have come to a conclusion about to give guidance to the arbitral panel about what they might consider. And could you give us a little bit of your insight on how best decommissioning disputes can be avoided? Oh, well, that's the best way is to make sure that it's thought about right up front when you've signed the very first expiration contract before you've ever found anything. Make sure that the parties, and this includes the host government, are aware of the issue, are aware of what can or should be done to make sure that there will not be a dispute at the end of the life. And I think that is indeed happening these days. Most of the decommissioning disputes that have come up could have been avoided if all parties had at the start recognized that it would one day be an issue and put mechanisms in place to deal with it. Adding to that, we do see PSEs, which is a contractual instrument, vary within a country in the same period. So a 1985 package of contracts, PSEs, all onshore, may, some may have a decommissioning fund set up, others may have no discussion of decommissioning at all. And the presumption is if there is no discussion of the decommissioning, that that is intentional on the part of the parties, both the government and the contractor, and it was not intended that a decommissioning fund or the contractor decommission the facilities. And we see that not uncommonly. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I think I have time for one more question, and this will be our last question. But could you describe, you know, as briefly as possible, any recent developments with respect to decommissioning? I know, for instance, I, I sit on the drafting committee of AIPN's uh, model joint operating agreement, and decommissioning is a huge issue. So are there any recent developments that should be taken into account in that context or just more generally with parties you know, attempting to do exactly as you described and address decommissioning disputes up front? It's a fairly extensive addition to the joint operating agreement for the AIPN. It's a solid seven pages with multiple references back into the document. A lot of it dealing with how you fund, how you calculate the value of assets, what happens in defaults. But, of course, it is reverting back to the post-government instrument because that is what the requirement is. But it does set out with a lot of options and alternatives that need to be thought through that one should take into account. Uh, there is a, quite a lot of use of a single unanimously chosen expert to resolve disputes and 
I must say, our my experience has been the unanimously selection of an expert is quite challenging, and if there is a fault or a disagreement arises about how the expert performed, then you go to the arbitration clause. So I'm not quite sure that is the best of the solutions, but it is one in between the senior executives mediating and arbitration. All right. Well, thank you very much for, for all of that insight. With that, we will conclude the podcast. And thank you very much to our guests, Chris Moyes and Chris Moore. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved. 